Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. These things aren't supposed to be wedded together. I can't help but have that reaction as I come to the story in today's gospel, that there are all sorts of things in the story that seem like they should not be wedded together. What do I mean? Well, for starters, the fact that in the story you have a woman who is coming to a well in order to get water, and when does she do it? John tells us that it's at the sixth hour, which by their time reckoning means high noon, in the heat of the day. The natural time to come and get water would be in the cool of the day, whether that be in the morning or in the early evening. So why is she there then? That's one thing. And then there's the, the content of the conversation that ensues. On the one hand, at the beginning, they're, they're talking about water, living water, and the next thing you know, we're talking about weddings, lots of them, right? And then it even goes on to talk about worship. What do all these things have to do with one another? It all seems sort of scattered and slipshod. How do they all fit? And of course, the strangest union and communion of all is the fact that Jesus would be here, the sinless Son of God, that he would be here talking to not just a woman, but a Samaritan woman, a woman who in that day and age would have been regarded as, at the very least, socially undesirable and more likely as gravely immoral, a woman who had been, you might say, looking for love in all the wrong places. <laughs> and yet here Jesus is talking with her. Even she wonders, what do you have to do with me here? We might be wondering the same thing. Why are these things wedded together in this story? Well, I think we can see why they are and how it is that they all fit together when we go back in time, back in biblical history, to this very same spot, the place that the story takes place here today, at Jacob's well. And when we go back into biblical history to the first place where we see Jacob's well show up in the scriptures, the story we heard in our Old Testament lesson, we'll not only see how these things fit together, but how Jesus being there and what's unfolding is even more scandalous than it seems at first. So let me take you back in time. 2,000 years before even this story takes place between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. About 2,000 years before that, we meet Jacob. Now, Jacob is one of what were called the patriarchs of Israel. There was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Later, he got his name changed to Israel, and ever after, they were known as the Israelites, those who were the descendants of Jacob and his kin. Well, so Jacob was one day sojourning. He was a foreigner in a foreign land, and he was deadly thirsty. It's high day. He's been sojourning, he's been traveling, and he is, he's dying out there in the heat. Until finally, fortunately, he comes across this well. A well that would come to be known as Jacob's well. And in fact, according to ancient Jewish tradition, Jacob had such power over this well that it would miraculously produce what were known as living waters. That is to say, flowing waters, rather than just the, the dry pond water of a cistern. This is living, flowing waters such that the cistern was still producing, the well was still producing 2,000 years later when Jesus is there with the Samaritan woman. So there, Jacob quenches his thirst with that water, but then, then he has an even deeper thirst that gets quenched. See, he's looking for a lady. Jacob wants a bride. And who should come along but this lovely young lady, Rachel? 
And for not the last time in history, Jacob, trying to impress the lady, does a feat of strength, right? As men are prone to do. There's this great big stone that normally it would take several shepherds in order to roll it away from the well. But no, Jacob is able to do it. And some tradition says that he even did it with one arm. <laughs> he opens up the well for himself and for Rachel. And where the story cut off in our reading this morning, right after that, it goes on to say that Jacob, being a very sensitive guy, starts weeping and kissing her right then and there. He moves quick. He moves quick. <laughs> but if you know the story, eventually it works out. But there's even more going on here beyond just this literal layer with the living waters of that well. See, according to Jewish tradition, this was picked up in the scriptures as well, it would be the case that a new bride or a bride-to-be would take a ritual bath on the day of her wedding. And it was uh, told that they would have this ritual bath in, you guessed it, living waters. This is reflected, for example, in these verses from the Song of Solomon, in the Song of Songs. It says, a garden locked is my sister, my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed, a garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. So we have all of this flowing together, if you will, as Jacob is at that well. And fascinatingly, even more importantly, is that this story of Jacob and Rachel, on the one hand, it became kind of like a, a how I met your mother story for the Israelites, right? As we go way back, this is how it all started, y'all. But also it helps to establish a, a, a trope, a pattern that occurs throughout the Old Testament scriptures. See, before Jacob, his father Isaac also met his wife, at a well, when he was a foreigner in a strange land. It was Abraham's servants that helped play the matchmaking in that role. But Isaac, Ab uh, Jacob's father, he met Rebekah at a well in the heat of the day. And later, after Jacob, Moses, also a stranger in a strange land, would meet his wife at a well. So it became kind of this, this pattern. It was well known among ancient Jews that you don't go to the bar to meet ladies, you go to the, to the well, right? The town watering hole, if you will. <clears throat> See what I did there? It was almost a sort of formula. You take a male foreigner plus a lady plus a well, preferably at midday, equals wedded together. All of which helps to shed light on why the disciples react as they do. Why they are utterly flabbergasted when they come back to find Jesus conversing with this woman. Now, it's not simply because he's talking to a woman. Jesus deals with all sorts of women, Mary and Martha, even the Canaanite woman, the woman with the, the hemorrhage of blood, people who were unclean. They didn't freak out as much about that. It's not just the fact that she's a Samaritan woman either. It's that they know the formula too, right? They see Jesus. As he's sojourning in this strange land of Samaria, they see this strange single lady, and there they are in the heat of the day at high noon at a well, and all of that is starting to ring a bell in their ears, and it might be a wedding bell, and they are freaked out because they're thinking, wait a second, what do these things have to do with one another? How could this be wedded together? But understand, this is precisely why Jesus came. 
I don't mean with literal nuptials between him and the Samaritan woman. I mean even more deeply and profoundly than that. That he comes as the divine bridegroom to claim his bride, even, especially, of the most unlikely people. Think about the Samaritan woman. Why is she there at noon? It's because she knows full well that she is an outcast. As she has gone through one, two, three, four, five different husbands, regarded as an outcast, as unclean, this immoral adulterer. She's got no business even going to the well in order to get water. She has to do it when no one else is around. She's a woman whose heart then is filled with shame and that sense of unworthiness. I don't belong. I'm not accepted. I am permanently, irrevocably unclean. To all the world, this woman looks like, well, like a beast. But Jesus came to make of beasts his beauty. Jesus came to make of beasts his beauty. He is the divine bridegroom who goes searching for his bride, not among those who look the most lovable in the eyes of the world, but indeed to the loveless. There's that wonderful line from our Lent hymn, my song is love unknown, my Savior's love to me. Love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. In other words, the love of our Lord does not find something lovable. He creates it. He makes of beasts his beauties. And so fittingly, like Jacob before him, he comes with a kind of bridal gift even for the Samaritan woman, the gift of living water. Living water that quenches her deepest thirsts. Living water that cleanses her from all of her past sins, all the things of which she is ashamed, all those things that make her feel unworthy and unacceptable to God. He makes of that beast his beauty. And so it's appropriate then that John does include a little detail. John likes to do this. He's kind of winking at the readers. He says that then she ran back into town and she left something behind. Did you catch what it was? She left her water jar because now her deepest thirsts have been met. What about for you and me? We thirst too. And what do we thirst for? We thirst for understanding. We thirst for belonging, for acceptance. We thirst for love. And you know, underneath that thirst and that longing is ever and always a thirst and a longing for God himself. It says in in Psalm 42, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. I thirst for God, for the living God. We all have that thirst, but here's the thing. Having that thirst will go looking in any and every place in order to try and quench it, right? In order to try and satisfy it. And so you and I, we've all been guilty of looking for love in all the wrong places. Looking for love in all the wrong places through disordered loves, through destructive desires, 
things that we think are going to bring peace of mind, but all they do is bring destruction to the body and to the soul. Things that we've done, things that have been done to us, stuff we've looked at that we wish we could forget and we cannot. And what does that give us? Does it quench the thirst? No, instead it's like drinking salt water. (laughs) It only makes it worse and worse still. It makes you and I feel ashamed and unworthy, unacceptable to come into the presence of God. It makes us feel like beasts. But Jesus came to make of beasts his beauties, you and me. And there is nothing that you have done or that has been done to you that renders you permanently unfit and unclean in the presence of God. No, your divine bridegroom, Christ Jesus, he has come with the living waters, the waters that flowed from his crucified side, the waters that are given to us in holy baptism so that now Christ the bridegroom is able to wash you and me clean. As it says in Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That's you. Nothing can change that. Christ has cleansed you and made you whole and holy his. He has made of beasts his beauties. It's what he did for Malachi this morning. What he's done for all of us. Through that simple water and through that word, he cleanses you. And just like Malachi, for every single one of us, we come to the Lord not in a place of strength, of abundance, but in a place of lack and need. But for our Lord, that's precisely how he wants to meet you. Nothing is wedded together better than that. Jesus says, I did not come for those who are righteous, but those who are sinners. It's not the well who need the doctor, but the sick. That's the union that he brings. Unlikely as it might seem to you and me, You are wedded together with Christ, your bridegroom. And nothing, nothing can break that bond. Amen. May the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We stand for prayer.